0: Go ahead and find Proverbs 31 with me, Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31, I'd like to welcome you this morning and uh, go ahead and extend an invitation for this evening at 5, this is our monthly Q&A night and uh, this evening I have a question about uh, what's sometimes called the intermediate state. That is, what happens to those who die before Jesus comes back? Where do we go uh, in between death and the final state? What happens, what happens basically when we die? So it's a big question, and we'll take our best crack at it this evening. The Bible always acknowledges the real temptations associated with sin. The reason people like sin and the reason people do sin so much is because it is enjoyable, and it is pleasurable, and it is fun. Um, And the Bible admits that. The Bible never tries to pull the wool over our eyes saying, don't sin because it's boring. There's nothing to see here. Don't bother. There's nothing appealing about it. It's silliness." That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't try to hide sin from us. Actually, what the Bible does is hold our eyes open when we look at sin for much longer than we're comfortable with. That's what the Bible does with sin. The Bible admits the enticements of sin, but then it says you've got to keep looking at it beyond the enticement. You've got to look at sin a long time. You have to keep reading the story. And so, yes, David has sex with the woman he lusted after. But you have to keep reading. You have to keep reading about the horror that follows in the cover-up and how it ruins his whole life. The Bible says, hold your eyes open and keep looking at sin. Yes, look at the enticement, but then keep looking at it. Look at the consequences. If there's anyone who's trying to pull the wool over our eyes and not get us to look at sin straight in the face, it's, of course, the devil who says, look at the tasty fruit, never mind the consequences of eating it, but look at how tasty it looks. He's the one who's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Satan's really a fisherman who sees us as fish. And the enticement of sin is his bait, and the consequences of sin are the hook. He only wants us to see the bait and ignore the hook. And in Proverbs, Solomon is telling his son, Son, you need to keep looking at sin so that you don't just see the bait but also the hook. So that you don't just see sin's enticements but also its consequences. See, the foolish man only ever sees the pleasure of sin. The wise man also sees the consequences of sin. The wise man knows the sting of sin is always in the tail. The wise man knows that the night that begins with booze and high spirits, pun intended, ends with hangovers and regrets and consequences that far outlast the pleasure. So our study of Proverbs today will focus on that particular illustration that I've just used, that, the danger in that illustration. I want to look at what Proverbs says on the subject of drink, on the subject of, of alcohol and drinking. What does wisdom say about both the enticements and also the consequences of sin? What does wisdom say? understand about that. To put it in another way, what, what does our foolish, pleasure-seeking world miss that the wise, God-seeking man understands? There's a good bit in Proverbs about the subject of drink. And I want us to look at, that, look at that this morning. To begin with, I want us to see the enticements. Again, the Bible admits the enticements of sin. And indeed, Proverbs describes why it is so many people turn to this. And I want to look at a couple of categories Uh, of this, a couple of type of people who often drink. The first is what we'll call the depressive. So this is Proverbs 31. The last two chapters of Proverbs are uh, are actually collected from other sources, which Solomon saw fit to preserve for his readers. He says there is in this God's wisdom that we all can learn from. And what we have in Proverbs 31 are the words of the mother of a king to her son, or perhaps a soon-to-be king. Uh, The words of a mother to a son about that. The king's name is Lemuel, and his mother is telling him how he can rule wisely and how he can avoid the many pitfalls of youth and the pitfalls of power. Here's how you do it, and here's how you don't do it, son. This is Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So here's what his mother said. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, this is a passage where context is everything. Um, We could, if we were uh, very unscrupulous Bible students, we could just quote verses 6 and 7, rip them from their context, and we could have Lemuel's mother basically recommending booze to us if we want to forget life's hardships. And that's what the Bible is telling us. And so we would make it say, if someone's in a rough patch, hand them a bottle and they can forget their troubles. Well, of course, verses 4 and 5 have just underscored the terrible damage alcohol can do, especially to someone who has any little bit of responsibility. What verses 6 and 7 are really saying to this young man with a bright future, what it's really saying to him is, son, do you want to be like these people in verses 6 and 7? Basically, she's saying, son, if you want to be a loser, here's how you do that. Do you want to squander everything good in your life? Do you want to make a mess of all the responsibilities you've been given? Because here are the kinds of people who who turn to drink to solve other problems, verses 6 and 7, people who are perishing and people without hope, and I don't want that to be you. So what we have exposed to us in verse 7 is an appeal of drink to many, and that is the appeal of escape. Verse 7, let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more it can often be a way of sort of throwing in the towel. I give up. There's nothing worth living for. There's no more responsibilities I want to attend to. There's no more relationships I intend on keeping healthy. I've got nothing else to do. Life is miserable. The best I can do is just make myself forget it, wipe my memory, and so I'll throw away the rest of the day by getting, drink, getting drunk before noon. Now, what's being described here is, of course, an enticement, not an endorsement. This is, of course, not a healthy way to deal with hardship or misery or poverty. The ultimate need of the miserable and the downtrodden is not to forget their troubles. It's to find a Savior who saves us from our troubles. Becoming a disciple means finding the ultimate purpose and meaning and reason to live that the people in verses 6 and 7 have lost. When you're following Jesus, you don't want to drink away your troubles. You want to cast your cares on God. When you follow Jesus... You don't give up and forsake all responsibility. You find that you have a master to serve and a deep purpose for living. So what we have here exposed is a reason many people turn to drink, and that is to forget, that is to escape from our depressing, depressing existence. The second enticement is uh, the type of person who's enticed would be what I'll call the partier. And what I'm going to do now is cheat a little bit. Um, we're actually going to go outside of Proverbs, but in my defense... Um, we're going just a few pages forward in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. And the author of this book is the same as the author of Proverbs. And so if you'll uh, forgive me and allow me to still call my sermon Proverbs on drink, we'll go to Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 3. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 3. <coughs> Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 3. I search my heart, Ecclesiastes 2, 3. I searched my heart. How to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So in his great search for significance under the sun, the preacher here seeks it out in wine, seeks out significance, meaning in wine. What was he hoping for in this verse? Well, he says, how to cheer my body is what I was after. I was looking for how he could cheer my body. What he's looking for is fun. He's looking for happiness. He's looking for a good time. He's basically looking for all the things that the beer commercial promises you. And part of this as well is a reaction to something he's just run up against. At the end of chapter 1, he's just declared the vanity of making intellectual pursuits the center of your life. Of putting all your meaning in life in the basket of the intellect. Of, of knowledge. This is chapter 1 in verse 18. He's just said, In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, the more you just come to understand just how miserable our existence is. What he says in the beginning of chapter 2 is, okay, being smart isn't the meaning of life. So maybe being dumb is the meaning of life. Sober intellectualism didn't do it, so maybe drunken foolishness is a better life. But what did he find? What did he find out about that? This is chapter 2 and verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. <clears throat> I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was, um, this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. What he found was, whenever I pursued pleasure, drink one of those, I found out it doesn't make you happy and it doesn't make you whole. It won't give you lasting cheer to your body or your heart and it's certainly not what makes life meaningful. This is Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 19. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 19 before we go back to Proverbs. This is Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 19. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, And wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Here's another verse where context matters. The preacher is not saying that, that money and alcohol are, are the answer to all life's problems, actually. What he's saying rather is they only seem to be. Because what he's just been doing here, <clears throat> he's in the middle of describing the attitude of these worthless, self-indulgent rulers. What he's doing is parroting their attitudes. Look at the kind of people who says what he says in verse 19. He just said this in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning, when they act like children. This is verse 18. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. And then when you get to verse 19, what you're getting there is what those kinds of people, those kind of childish rulers, the kinds of attitudes they bring to it that bread is made for laughter, that wine gladdens life, and that money answers everything. For people like this, princes who party in the morning and do nothing else the rest of the day. For people like this, feasting, laziness, wine, money, food, these are so- the solution to every problem of life. What it's describing here is an enticement that wins over the foolish, that the remedy for boredom, the thing that makes life worth living, the way to gladness, is the party. I think of, when I read these verses, I think of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel who on the very night his empire was falling and he certainly would have known it was about to all end or was about to be threatened. He was busy throwing a drunken orgy here. The meaning of his life, the thing that made everything else okay was if I could just drink enough. Now there's one more element of this as we think of the enticements and the fun and, uh, and the pleasure we seek often in, in drink. There's one more element I think that's worth mentioning, and that is in Proverbs as well as the rest of Scripture, drinking and sexual immorality often appear together. So, for example, in Proverbs 6 and verse 24, when the adulteress is seducing the naive young man, it says she uses smooth words. That same adjective commentators point out, that same adjective, smooth, is the very same adjective used to describe red wine in Proverbs 23 and verse 31, smooth. A connection is made between smooth speech and smooth wine, both of which are used to ply a victim to make more amenable to sex. This is borne out in the biblical story as well. For example, when Lot's daughters are so desperate for sons that they go into their father, how do they accomplish their incestuous plan? They made their father drink wine that night and lay with him, and he did not know when she lied down or when she rose. The New Testament also echoes this. This is Romans 13 and verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. See, one of the enticements of drink is that it lowers inhibition. Sometimes it's our own inhibition we want to be lowered, and also sometimes it's the inhibition of others that we want to lower. This is an enticement. Just to be frank, as the as frank as the Bible is, this is, an, this is an enticement. Many people see in it. Which brings us to a third, third kind of enticement, and that is the enticement that is enjoyed by the connoisseur. This is Proverbs 23 and verse 31 now. Proverbs 23 and verse 31. <clears throat> Something that might surprise you about the Bible's message about about drink. This is Proverbs 23 and verse 31. Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. This is part of a longer passage we'll flesh out in our our next point. But for now, I just want to notice an interesting warning here that might surprise you. The enticement of wine here is described not as a means of forgetting all your troubles, not as a way of amping up the party. The enticement here is in the way it looks and tastes. If I could put it this way, what we're talking about here is not the Bud Light ad, where a bunch bunch of good old boys are just sort of having a good time. What we're talking about here is something more like the the, the high-dollar wine or bourbon ad, the sort of high-class kind of thing. And so he says, do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. What's being described here is the aesthetic attraction, looking at it, how it sparkles. The wine is used to describe, it's used, as we said, in the same language as the adulteress in Proverbs. He uses her beauty, the way she looks to seduce the naive young man. It's not hard here to imagine the highbrow alcohol advertisement, where where well-dressed and beautiful people swirl around their drinks in their glasses, and they admire the rich color of this drink that's been distilled and expertly aged by craftsmen. What's being described here is the connoisseur here, not not the drunken, fall-down drunk, but rather the connoisseur of it. The second half of the verse says it goes down smoothly. He's not describing here the frat boy who buys the cheapest beer he can so he can drink as much as he can. That's not what's being described. It's describing the connoisseur who talks about the notes of oak, and how it pairs so well with land. That's what he's talking about. He's describing something closer to a wine tasting than a frat party. As one man has put it, these phrases describe those smitten by and addicted to the aesthetic experience of drinking. They are connoisseurs of alcohol in its consumption. This is about more than thirst or drunkenness. This has become an art to them. So what I want to point out here is that, is that the wise, man relationship, wise man's relationship to drink is not... Drunkenness is the only thing the Bible's against. As long as you don't get drunk, whatever that means. As long as you don't get drunk, enjoy yourself. That's not the wise man's attitude. The wise man is aware of the dangers, not only in drunkenness, but also the dangers of connoisseurship. The warning here is about being entranced by the aesthetic experience. The warning here is about becoming a part of drinking culture. The Father's warning is not admire the stuff son just don't overindulge that's not the warning the warning is do not look at it do not look at it so with that let's begin to think more seriously about the effects the effects of this lifestyle the enticements are real here there is a reason people drink these are a few of them but of course to only see the enticement is to be like a fish who can only see the bait that's a fool What wisdom apprehends is not just the bait, but also the hook. Not just the enticement, but also the effects. Wisdom can see past the debaucherous night into the morning after where the cold light of day shows us what a fool we've been. And so this is Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. (coughs) 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So what we have here in line one is a personification of drinks as the actions they produce in the imbiber of those drinks. And so wine is the thing that it produces in us. That's what it says. They make us, first of all, they make us run our mouth. It's a mocker. We say things, we laugh at things we would not otherwise And we will certainly not be restraining our tongue or seasoning our words with salt or speaking wisdom whenever we are full of these things. And then it says strong drink is a brawler. This is the sort of thing that makes us fight. You know, there's something about the behavior of drinkers of alcohol that's altogether different from the drinkers of any other beverage. I have never in my life heard of a tea room dust up. I've never heard of a coffee house brawl. But I have definitely known about bar fights and barroom brawls. Line two makes a makes a moral judgment about this person that they are not wise, and they will not become wise as long as this is a part of their life. That's the effect. This is Proverbs twenty-three and verse nineteen. Twenty-three and verse nineteen. Twenty-three nineteen. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. So we have here really a a combination of of the drunkard and the glutton. This is speaking to a lifestyle of self-indulgence and partying is at the center of this life. And he says the reason you don't want to hang around people like that is as much as it It might be fun to be around these guys, these lives of the party. As much fun as that seems is, verse 21, is that they come to poverty, slumber will clothe them with rags. In other words, this fun lifestyle is headed somewhere that's definitely not fun. It's fun, but only in the beginning for a little bit, and it's not fun on the other side of it. It's going to catch up with you. Any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting you will ever go to will have a version of this story being told. About how it was fun until it wasn't. It was fun until it ruined our entire life. This is Proverbs 23 and verse 29. What we have here is an extended passage, uh, really involved in an interesting passage about the effects of drink. This is 23:29, Proverbs 23 and verse 29. "Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes?" We have here our our six questions in three pairs. Um, It's sort of meant as a riddle in the beginning here. We're meant to ask as we see these questions, what is this describing? Well, the first two questions, who has woe and who has sorrow? This is about the emotional effects of drink. Who has woe and who has sorrow? These are words of depression and regret, woe and sorrow. Next two questions, who has strife? Who has complaining? This is about the relational effects of drink. It puts strife and contentions in our lives. It ruins relationships. It causes, alternately, abuse or neglect. And then the last two questions, who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Here are now the physiological effects of drink. So we've got the emotional, the relational, relational, and now physical effects of drink. Here's the guy who wakes up with blurry vision, red eyes, bruises. He can't remember how he got. Verse thirty. Those here hear the answer to the riddle, those who tarry long over wine, those who go, who, who go to try mixed wine. So the answer to the riddle of verse 29 is that those who spend their time at the party, at the bar with the bottle. Mixed wine here he mentions at the end of verse 30. This has to do with wine that's been mixed with spices and other things to enhance the taste and make it go down easier so that you can drink more. And we certainly have many versions of that today. Verse 31 Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. The advice here is not be responsible about it. The advice is not get a designated driver. The the warning is not just drink socially. It's don't even look at it, much less taste it. And we've already discussed the aesthetic appeal being described here in this verse. This is verse 32. In the end, it says, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. And so it goes down smoothly in verse 31, but in verse 32, on the other side of it, it begins to bite and sting. Wisdom is about making choices based on where they lead, not just how they feel in the moment. And this certainly does not pass the wisdom test, that the end of it is never as pleasant as the beginning. Verse 33, Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. We have here the effects on the mind of alcohol. That is, it is a distorted reality where you laugh at things that aren't funny and you see things that aren't there and you say things that no one else can understand. Is this really, he's wanting to ask us, is this really something we want to seek out? To be nonsense people? This is verse 34. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of a sea. Like one who lies on the top of a mast. And so here we have described here a drunk person laying down on solid ground but feels like they're on the top of a mast in a ship that's sailing in a storm. They feel like the world is going like this when they're laying on solid ground. The world is spinning and they can't even stand up. There's also probably here a, a subtle subtle parallel, a subtle reference between seasickness and the kind of sick that a drunk person often gets. Verse 35 even makes it explicit. Verse 35 They struck me, you say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I will not feel it. When shall I awake? And here's his answer, I must have another drink. So the father, what he does here is put words in the drunk's mouth. He imagines what this man, this uh, this consummate drunk, has, has coming out of his mouth. As he struggles to regain consciousness the morning after, he looks around and he starts asking himself, Hey, when did I get beat up? I don't remember getting a black eye. Where would all this vomit come from? And as he begins to sober up a little bit, trying to get up, what is his next thought? I must have another drink. And so now what we have is a reset to, to verse 29 again, to verse 30. We just repeat the whole process again the next day. And when get gets to the end of that day, he'll say again what he says in verse 35, I must have another drink what the father is saying to his son is son quite a life isn't it just the sort of thing you want huh see the bible always acknowledges that the real temptations associated with sin the reason people sin the reason people do it so much is because it is enjoyable it is pleasurable it is fun the bible never pulls the wool over our eyes and says there's nothing to see here what the Bible really wants us to do is not to look away from sin altogether, but to look at it far longer than the devil wants us to. It wants us to hold our eyes open much longer about the realities of sin. The wise man, Proverbs, says to the man who does that, who looks at sin long enough that he doesn't just see the tasty bait, but he also sees the hook that it's attached to. So I want to end, end this morning with a story that is basically about that, a story in which... A young man is trained not to just look at the bait, but also the hook. Uh, the following is a, is a recollection written by, uh, written by Warren Berkeley. This is what he says. He says, in 1957, my father decided it was time for me to witness intoxication. He wanted his 10-year-old son to see and smell drunkenness. My mother was not entirely convinced. My grandmother was opposed to it. But against these protests, my father carried out his plan. He consulted with his best friend, who was the father of my best friend, and they were agreed. One of the elders in the church was the chief of police in Fort Smith, Arkansas. A time was set on a Saturday morning. My father and best friend's father took us to the jailhouse. First we went into Brother Brock's office. He showed us various pictures on the wall of local police history. He unloaded his revolver and let us hold it. We played with the handcuffs and thought all of it was a lot of fun. Then he took us to see the jail. As we entered the outer jail area, Brother Brock was approached by the jailer who said, Wait a minute, chief. I'll go clean the place up. Brother Brock said, No, I don't want anything cleaned up. And so he took us to a row of cells called drunk tanks. The first thing that hit us was the odor. The men in these holding cells looked awful. They were soiled. Some of them were passed out, exposed, coughing, speaking unknown words. We were shocked. We gagged. We looked at Brother Brock and our fathers. They didn't say anything. The scene conveyed the message, lesson learned. And then he says, see, for reference, Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. We need to see not just the enticement of sin, all sin, drunkenness and any other. We need to see not just the enticement, not just the fun the night of, but also the sad story on the morning after. And all sin has a morning after. It might not come tomorrow, it might come at the end of life, but there is always a morning after of sin where it will be shown all the pleasure we had was not worth it even, even a little bit. So maybe there's someone here th- this morning that realizes the way you've been living your life is to be entranced by the bait, seeing all the enticements that the world has to offer and being totally blind and foolishly ignorant of what sits on the other side of it. Maybe there's someone that wants to repent of that life, live for pleasure, away from God. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing. to have been together this morning. Uh, This is a high point in uh, my week, I'll tell you now. I just love you more every time I see you. Every one of you. We'll have a word of prayer together and then we'll be dismissed.